listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, moldy cheese at the center of the galaxy. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Charles Towns, who will be discussing lasers. Also, we'll find out what's in the middle of the Milky Way. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. I'm Franklin. And I, once again, I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Very good, very good. So, Charles, do you consider yourself a cheese whiz? <laughs> I'm a whiz at many things, but I don't quite understand the full concepts of cheese. So, when you have cheese in your hands, it just get out of control and go all over the place? <laughs> well, usually I don't hold it in my hands. Oh. <laughs> usually my feet. It turns out there's an entire science related to um, making cheese. Yeah, I mean, this I understand is but cheese has been made for centuries. <laughs> but it turns out it's very difficult to figure out the process in which milk is transformed into cheese because of the complex uh, interactions of bacteria with the milk and the conditions in which they produce it in. It's not something I guess most people stick their nose into is delving around in bacteria as they curdle. But one of the latest trends right now in cheese making into science is to genetically modify some of the bacteria they use for that. So you have super bugs making super cheeses. Yeah, super cheeses that will supposedly eliminate unwanted flavors. For example, certain bitterness or certain extreme sourness that you get with certain varieties of cheese. Oh, but that's the best kind of cheese, right? (laughs) (laughs) If you didn't realize, it actually takes 10 pounds of milk to make one pound of cheese. And what happens the other nine pounds? I think it's just water, right? Is that right? Or, or whey, whatever they uh, okay. siphon off in yeah. the process. This is work that's carried out in different cheese companies, but the USDA is also actively involved in regulating some of the uh, the genetic modifications that's going on. Right. I've always wanted penicillin cheese. Every time I have a cold, I like my cheese and I like to be healthy. So. Right. And interestingly, uh, the two main types of bacteria they use for making cheese is uh, streptococci and lactobacilli, one of which causes strep throat, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is interesting work and see it in the recent edition of of Chemical Engineering News. Alright, so more good news from the center of the galaxy. From the center of the galaxy? Isn't there like a black hole there or something? There is indeed a super massive black hole in the center of the galaxy. Wow, so that Disney movie was correct after all, huh? <laughs> Which movie is that? <laughs> the black hole. <laughs> and you're supposed to go into hell if you go into that, right? I thought they end up coming out through a quasar or something on the other side uh, of the galaxy. Oh, or, that's what or, happens. Or, you know, some weird uh, wormhole. You know, I get all my science knowledge from Disney films, so... <laughs> It would explain my lack of science knowledge. It's a small world after all. <laughs> and apparently they all sing the same song. <laughs> uh, but it turns out that there's not just one black hole in the center of the galaxy. There may be at least two, perhaps more. Wow, a multi-black hole. Uh, it's indeed. Uh, it was just three years ago, in fact, that astronomers confirmed that the Milky Way revolves around a supermassive black hole, which was called Sagittarius A star. And that one is about 2.6 million times more massive than the sun. Wow. But right now they found a much smaller black hole, just a mere 1,300 times as big as the sun. Uh-huh. And it's orbiting around its supermassive cousin. Wow, so it's not trying to chew each other up then? Apparently, I guess it's sort of in a stable orbit right now, but it might be actually collapsing into the larger one. Interesting to see what kind of interaction happens (laughs) when they collide. You know, it's always tough to see when two black holes get together. This basically confirms a lot of the theories about how supermassive black holes and actually star clusters can be formed in the galactic centers of galaxies, Mm -hmm. just because it looks like 
like probably smaller black holes form outside of the galactic center and then just sort of eventually sucked into the center and, right. and add to the mass of the already existing black hole. Right. So it'll be interesting again, of course, to see how they interact. One black hole to rule them all. <laughs> like a three-part trilogy. And this was a uh, very fascinating work and it was published in Astronomy and Astrophysics. So, Charles, what do you do when you get damp? Not much, really. I actually enjoy the dampness. And what if you get moldy from that? <laughs> Mold is my only friend. Your only friend? It actually accounts for most of my hair. <laughs> Not on my head, though. <laughs> oh, but it turns out all this mold that you can see in the buildings is not good for you. Okay. Some researchers at LBL in their uh, the Building Technologies program have identified mold growth as a significant health hazard in buildings. So what sorts of diseases are they causing? It's not really clear because it seems to be related to a number of respiratory illnesses, allergies, and numerous stress-related syndromes. Basically, they want people to be aware that dampness in buildings is actually quite dangerous. Okay. Aside from putting a lot of spores into the air and so-called myotoxins, gases which they haven't really identified but seems to come from these molds. It also causes uh, structural deficiencies in the building. Oh, so they can actually like break down the wood and stuff. Oh yeah, indeed. Uh, in, in many cases, if you uh, look under cabinets or uh, behind your walls, sometimes you'll see uh, entire panels of wood which are just completely molded and you won't know for years because it's behind the pane, right. behind the wall. But something that people should be aware of if they have consistent respiratory problems, it could be coming from your walls. I've always been afraid of my walls, <laughs> especially the walls in my place. You don't want to see them. Uh. So what can people do? Is there like some sort of anti-fungicide or something they can like, spray around? So the best way is to prevent it and you can use you know, dehumidifiers, fans when you take a shower, check under your sink that make sure nothing is leaking. If it looks like there's significant damage then you just remove the whole fixture or panel and then replace it. That's probably the, the only way to go there. Okay. Well, good advice I guess for all those who used to keep mold as pets. So if anyone's interested they can contact William Fisk at LBL or just go to the LBL.gov website. All right, so do you take your pills regularly? Uh, only when I'm sick. Well, that's perhaps a good thing. Do you take them regularly when you're sick? No, since they're expensive. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have allergies and I only take it when I'm really, really in pain. Uh, you should probably go to Canada then. <laughs> <laughs> that's a little cheaper, I've heard. Even Mexico. Oh, yeah. I've actually heard there's like, some travel junkets where they actually just take people to different countries to get pills and surgeries. surgeries? Yeah. I've heard of that. Well, in Japan, one of the popular trends now among aging men is the Viagra tours. <laughs> <laughs> where do they go? Thailand? <laughs> there or Mexico. <laughs> okay. Uh, you go for a week and you see a doctor, I guess. Right. And, uh, <laughs> Making the quotes over the air. You, know, you can't really <laughs> you see, can it. see it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I can hear it too. Yeah. Air quotes. Always good over the radio. <laughs> anyway, but it turns out though, uh, if you take your pills regularly, in particular when it comes to heart disease, it may not matter whether you take an actual drug or a placebo. Oh, well, I drink wine every day. Uh, that works as well. <laughs> but this is actually a study led by Brady Granger of Duke University. And what she actually did was re-examine old clinical trials comparing pills that are routinely used to treat high blood pressure mm -hmm. against a placebo and it just turned out that people who took a pill, any pill, mm -hmm. a placebo or the regular pill regularly, were actually more likely to have lower heart disease than those people who just took it intermittently. So is this study trying to show the power of the placebo effect? Or? I think actually what they're suggesting is that this just identifies people who are more prone to following regimes regularly. So mm -hmm. engaging in healthy activities like running or eating healthier, it may not have necessarily have to do with the pill at all. It's just that these people are more likely to follow a set regime than the other people. So what they're saying is that if they can then identify these people who are not doing this, then they can perhaps set them on the right course through behavioral training. It's, it's fascinating stuff, and it, it may show that uh, just taking a pill, any pill, is better than no pill. This is a red pill or a blue pill? <laughs> uh, but if you don't want to stay in the Matrix, yes, you can look in the uh, recent edition of The Lancet. 
And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor Charles Towns will join us to discuss lasers. So stay tuned. to Berkeley Grocks. Well, joining us today is a very distinguished guest, Professor Charles Towns from the University of California at Berkeley. He received a Nobel Prize in 1964 for his work in the fundamental physics of quantum electronics, and he's also the author of How the Laser Happened, The Adventures of a Scientist. Professor Towns received his PhD from the California Institute of Technology in 1939. Thereafter, he served in various positions at Bell Labs, MIT, and Columbia University before coming here to Berkeley. Professor Towns, thanks for joining us today on Berkeley Grok. Well, glad to be with you. So I understand you started your earlier work with microwave radiation systems for spectroscopy and the radar. How did that lead to the development of the MASER? Well, uh, when I went to Bell Telephone Laboratories after getting my degree, I wanted to do science. But the war was coming along, and uh, very soon Bell Laboratories insisted that I should uh, have to work on uh, war problems, engineering problems, and that was radar particularly. So I was assigned the job of designing radar systems, particularly radar systems for airplanes. I wasn't very pleased with that, but on the other hand, I knew all of us had to pitch into the war. Uh, but it turned out to be very helpful to me. I learned a great deal of engineering. I learned about microwaves, and I recognized then that microwaves, oh, microwaves could do very good job in determining the spectra of molecules and the characteristics of molecules and so on. So I did that, and pretty soon that was popular enough that I got invited to have a professorship at Columbia University, and I was glad to get into academic work. I continued such work in microwave spectroscopy of molecules, studying molecules with microwaves. I wanted to get to shorter waves. I was using waves of about one centimeter long, half an inch long. I wanted to get on down to shorter waves, down to a millimeter or half a millimeter or a tenth of a millimeter, because those waves would be absorbed by the molecules even more strongly, and I could just do additional science. But nobody knew how to generate such waves. See, we made microwaves with klystrons and magnetrons that had been invented shortly before the war and during the war they developed. And those are all very useful, but they couldn't get to short wavelengths. And so I tried and tried to get to short wavelengths in many different ways. My students and I tried, and none, nothing worked very well. I was even a appointed as chairman of a committee, a national committee, to try to study how could we get to sh- get oscillators to shorter waves. And that committee traveled around and saw a lot of things, but uh, we didn't find a way. But the last meeting of the committee, I woke up early in the morning worrying about it, you know, why have 
problem. We've been able to produce shorter waves. I went through all of my past thinking. Well, molecules, of course, oscillate very fast and produce short waves, but you can't get much energy from them because of certain thermodynamic laws. And so, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. They don't have to obey thermodynamics. We don't have to have them at a specific temperature. We can have them have a, a lot of excited molecules and none, none unexcited. So, um, wait a minute. Hey, that can produce very strong energy. And I thought about it and I wrote down, quickly wrote down some notes on a piece of paper and it looked like it could be made to work. And my idea was to get molecules in an excited state having excess energy, send a beam of them into a resonant cavity, a resonant microwave cavity, and then they would emit and then the waves would build up in the cavity and take more and more energy from the molecules and that would make an oscillator which we call, well my students and I decided to pick out a name. They call it microwave amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. As the microwaves were amplified by the molecules, which were stimulated to give up their energy, mm -hmm. which they had. We sent in molecules with excess energy, and that provided the energy. Now, um, I tried to make it work first at about a centimeter wavelength, because I had a lot of equipment at a centimeter wavelength. I really wanted to get down to tenths of that, or hundredths of that, shorter wavelength. I tried to make it work first at a centimeter, because I thought, well, make it work that way, and then I can see how well it works out. Well, it worked out very well. It was very exciting. And um, it produced atomic clocks, for example, very, very precise frequencies. It produced very sensitive amplifiers, much more sensitive than we'd ever had before. And so it was an exciting field for quite a while. But I wanted to get to shorter wavelengths. And so I had to push to think, well, now, how, do, how am I get on, I'm going to push this method now? This method looks good, but I want to get on down to shorter wavelengths and how to do that. Very few people thought that the maser, which was amplifying microwaves, could be made to get to shorter wavelengths. Uh, they thought, well, the molecules, you can't have a lot of excited molecules at short wavelengths because they will fall down to, to unexcited states so quickly. They'll lose energy voluntarily so quickly that you can't do this at shorter wavelengths. I thought, yes, well, we can get to somewhat shorter wavelengths. So eventually I sat down at my desk, and now I, I haven't had a great idea just how to push this down to very short wavelengths, but let me see how short I can go. And I wrote down notes and equations and to figure out, well, now how short can we go, really, if we can feed energy into the molecules and then have them energetic molecules, which can then give up energy. How short a wavelengths can you go to? And I looked at the equation. Hey, wait a minute. It looks like we could get right on down to visible wavelengths. That's a very short wavelengths. Now, visible wavelengths, uh, see, I, I wanted to get to a millimeter. Well, a visible wavelength is, is about 20,000 times shorter than that. And I said, oh, wait, we can get way on down to visible wavelengths. This looks awfully interesting and good. I wanted to get into the infrared which is a tenth of a millimeter or a hundredth of a millimeter, but get on right on down the visible wavelength. So I talked with some of my students about it, and uh, then I, I was consulting for Bell Telephone Laboratories at that time, and my brother-in-law, Arthur Shallow, was out at Bell Labs. I talked with him, and I told him what I was doing. I thought we could get visible light. He said, well, you know, I've been wondering about that myself. And I uh, said, well, why don't we work on this together? So he and I worked on it together, and we wrote a paper about how to do it, and that was the laser, how to build, a, how, how to build something to get the shorter wavelengths, which then eventually got named. We, f I first, we first call it well an optical maser because it's like a maser, but it works in for optics. But eventually got called laser for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. And some of my students then invented all sorts of names they wanted. To, they wanted to say an eraser. That's infrared amplification by stimulated <laughs> emission of radiation. But eraser didn't last because lasers and masers. Have 
that those names would last. <coughs> so we wrote a paper about how to do it. By then, everybody was, when we wrote this paper, everybody got so excited and uh, about the possibility, and a lot of people jumped in to try to build one. And all the first lasers were built in industry because industry had put a lot of energy in people in it, and the first lasers were all built in industry. But then that made a very exciting science, and I have been using lasers, and many people have been using lasers and lasers to do additional physics and science, as well as engineering. And so for the Maser, uh, it's based partly on the photoelectric effect that Einstein had described for his first Nobel Prize. Is that correct? Well, Einstein first uh, pointed out that atoms and molecules, they give off energy or light and radiation and so on. That there are two effects and two ways they can give it off. One is they can just automatically give it off. That's spontaneous emission. They just spontaneously fall down to low energy, give off the energy. Or they can be stimulated to do it by, the, by a wave. A wave of light or microwaves comes and sort of tickles a molecule and uh, stimulates it to give its energy. And that's a stimulated emission of radiation. And Einstein first pointed out that that had to be present. And that was the effect that I used, yes. Right. Looking back, what was it like to do fundamental research in the 1940s and 50s? Are there any uh, differences from the way uh, research is carried out presently? Well, in general, of course, people continue to do research with the same kind of drive to find out new things and so on. But we keep finding out new things and those lead us on to other new things. And we have new technologies new instruments and so on, which could, where we can measure new things, measure things we couldn't have measured before. For example, the masers and lasers have been used as instruments to create another, or oh, about a dozen additional Nobel Prizes have been given for people who've used masers and lasers as instruments. So if we hadn't had them, that kind of science couldn't be done. The science continues to grow and multiply. It grows like a tree. You add on some, and then that adds on some more, and that adds on some more. The science, in a way, is always the same. We're still exploring. On the other hand, it's, one could also say it's changing all the time because you're exploring different things, new things. Right. If we look at the current technology, uh, lasers are used for cutting steel, laser eye surgery, security systems, and barcode readers. Did you envision any of these applications when you first developed the science for the laser? I could envision quite a few applications, yes. Uh, uh, many people didn't think it, didn't think immediately it would be very useful, but um, in fact, I took it to a patent attorney who thought, well, there's no point in patenting, we don't see any special uses for it. <laughs> now, I could see immediately its use in communication. I knew it would be very important in communication. In addition to producing a straight line, producing a straight line, in addition to getting very high intensity, very high intensity because you could focus the light, there's very intense light, and you could focus it and get very high intensity and burn things and so on. So I could see a number of applications, but I could by no means see all of them. For example, a doctor came to me saying, well, I wonder if you could, when, if we could discuss the possible uses of lasers for medicine. I'd like to write a discussion, a paper of that. And you help me? I said, well, okay, all right, we'll work together and try to write a discussion of how the laser might be used for medical purposes. So we wrote some things. We made a number of suggestions, but he didn't mention a detached retina, and I had never heard of a detached retina. So we didn't mention that, but that was really the very first and important medical application, reattaching detached retinas. Well, I'd never heard of one. <laughs> so I couldn't put it in there, and he didn't mention it. So, yes, I could foresee quite a few things, but by no means all the things that have happened. That's, again, characteristic of science. You, you can see, foresee some things and explore some things, and then other people add on some more and add on some more. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a lot of a lot of really wonderful new things coming out of lasers. So speaking of high intensity, there was uh, interest by the government to develop high intensity lasers as anti-weapon systems. Do you believe that's 
a laudable goal or a misapplication of our funding? I think uh, one should consider the use of lasers as a weapon. I don't think really it's a terribly good weapon, however. It is very, very useful for military purposes for measuring things and detecting things and guiding things, for example. It can make a missile really hit the target instead of, uh, it can hit a bridge. If you want to hit a bridge, you can hit the bridge instead of hitting the town and tearing up things unnecessarily. So it can it very much increases the accuracy and the precision of military instruments. But as a weapon itself, I don't really think it's very useful. So some have argued that the uh, golden age of science ended in the 1960s at the height of the Cold War, and since then funding has not kept up. Do you believe this is a problem, or is it just the uh, evolution of the scientific community? Certainly a lot of the technology we have today evolved from the seminal discoveries that were made then. Actually, funding of science has continued to grow. Science has continued to grow. But we are somewhat short of funding. Uh, more funding would be very helpful and I think would help the country, uh, help the nation and its technology and so on if we had more funding. But the funding is uh, not all that bad, actually. And science continues. It changes all the time. For example, now, nanotechnology is a fairly new field. In the 60s, that was hardly present. Now we can make things very, very small and work with things that are very small, and that's producing new technology, which is important, very important in computing and other things. Uh, and in biology, biology is also a very fast-growing field now. Biology used to be primarily descriptive. We just described the behavior of animals and plants and how they looked and what they did and so on. Now we try to understand how they work, and as we understand how they work, We'll be able to control them more. We'll invent new ways of doing medicine, new ways of controlling our own bodies and so on. So biotechnology and biology is a fast-growing field. Astrophysics is growing very fast. Physics is also growing. So um, science changes, but it continues to grow and enlarge. And uh, fortunately, the country is supporting it reasonably well, not as well as would be good. Mm -hmm. It would be best, but uh, reasonably well. In the popular culture, lasers often produce as beams of light to destroy spaceships and um, other interesting objects for these stories. Are, are you amused by some of the ways that laser is portrayed in the popular culture? Oh, yes, I enjoy seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> some of them are unrealistic, but uh, uh, they're imaginary. And uh, actually, imagination, you know, is part of the growth of science. And some of these imaginary things and this imagination of how they might be used, what might be done, is uh, not going to work out at all. Few of them will. It was kind of fun to see them. <laughs> so in 1967, you came to Berkeley to uh, pursue uh, research in astrophysics. Uh, how did you become interested in studying the sky, and what aspects of your earlier work in spectroscopy uh, do you use for astrophysics? Well, I might say first that when a field becomes popular that I'm working in, I find, I think, well, it's, they don't need me to continue to work in this. I'll try to go do something that I think people are neglecting. And so I moved from one field to another from time to time. The laser field became very, very popular. I thought, well, I don't want to work with the laser directly, but I see some other things in astronomy that I think people are missing and I'd like to work on. And one was to do infrared astronomy, do astronomy in infrared. Others make very precise measurements of spectroscopy in the infrared, get very sen high sensitivity in the, in, the, in the infrared. I saw some ways of using lasers also to make special measurements, and I'm using lasers now to measure the size of stars. I'm using lasers as a way of uh, detecting the light coming from the stars and uh, using multiple telescopes and measuring the size of stars, watching them s change in size and watching them blow off material and so on. So I have a microscope on the sky, mm -hmm. It uh, developed. I felt at that time there was much of astrophysics that, that uh, remained to be developed and it was interesting and I thought I saw some things that could be done and I've had a very interesting time trying to do that. Now, one other thing I might say 
As a result of that, we found mesas and lasers in space. Mesas and lasers have been out there produced by astronomical objects all this time. Nobody knew they were there. Mm -hmm. They've been there for billions of years. We didn't have to invent them on Earth. They were are there these, all the time. Are these collimated beams? Some, they're somewhat collimated. They're somewhat collimated. We don't know exactly how, how much they're collimated, but some of them are certainly collimated a bit. But they're very intense, and in it's amplification of microwaves by molecules. They make very intense... Um, microwave light coming to us, and water molecules in particular make very, very, very intense mazes. But there are also lasers up there in stars. They're not so obvious, but we we find them now. For the uh, budding scientists, what advice would you give them in terms of, of studying science? Uh, are there in particular fields that they should uh, look at these days? Well, I think there are many, many fields of science that are very interesting, and uh, I would suggest to the scientists, almost anyone in any field, think about what you would most enjoy doing, what you think is interesting and important, what you think is most interesting and important, and drive towards doing that, because the things that you enjoy doing, those are the ones you like to do best. So I'm just curious, uh, what were your earliest influences uh, in, in your scientific curiosity? Uh, who were your inspirations? Well, I was brought up on a small farm in South Carolina, and uh, my parents enjoyed the out of doors and uh, animal and plant life and so on, and uh, I became very interested in natural history. I collected butterflies, my brother and I collected butterflies and insects, and uh, we collected snakes, and uh, we identified plants and trees and so on, and I waded in the streams and, and collected things there and tried to identify them, so I was very interested in natural history in the out of doors, including the stars and so on. And that's uh, was part of my initial interest in science, trying to understand things further and further. And uh, my brother, for example, is, was an entomologist. That is, he went on professionally to collect insects, special kinds of insects, and he had a very profound collection of parasitic wasps, a very special type of insect. And I used, I've collected some for him on that even fairly recently. <laughs> Excellent. So I think we can all argue that science education in the U.S., especially in the primary schools, is not very well taught. I know this is a very difficult question, but what should we do about it? Well, I think there's a wide variation of how well people are taught in schools. Uh, some schools are much better than others. Some teachers are much better than others. But we do need, we do need very intelligent, interesting teachers in our schools. And I think partly we ought to pay them more. We ought to respect teachers more. We ought to pay them more. They're a very important part of our of, of our society, and so we get the very best people in the teaching. Uh, I had some very good teachers, and my when I was youngster, uh, women didn't have many opportunities for jobs, and many of the very bright women went into teaching, and they were they were good teachers. Now women can get many other jobs, and, <laughs> and that's a problem for our schools. I think we need to pay people more and emphasize the importance of schools more than we do. Uh, Professor Towns, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks. Thanks for your time. Well, I'm glad to be here. Best wishes. And you were just listening to Professor Charles Towns talking with Frank Ling about the development of lasers. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, you can find out what is at the center of the Milky Way. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, joining us now, it's Forrest Gump with the answer to last week's question of the week. Forrest? Yes, and I'm Forrest with the answer to last week's question of the week. My mama used to say, it's caramels and nougats in the middle of the Milky Way. But I asked these astronomers and they say, it's one big black hole. Oh, ho, ho! That's right, it is Frenchy French, Jean-Pierre Joshua, with this week's question of the week. You know, sitting under here under the Eiffel Tower, I'm always afraid that it is going to fall on top of me. So I drink my wine and I go, this wine is très magnifique. But what makes it even better? A placebo. Well, what does that placebo do? If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us here at grox.hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but oh, ho, ho, you just might feel the power of the placebo. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox.hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Link. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.com. Net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.